Hello, this is April Wolf, host of Switchblade Sisters. I want to let you know two important things about this episode. One, Kelly Reichardt was recording with us back in February in the studio. So please do not stress out. We are social distancing. This is just a pre-recorded episode. And two, it is the beginning of the Max Fun Drive. So Max Fun's business model is artist-owned, audience-supported. That means for you that when you become a member, you are directly affecting our ability to continue the show as well as Max Fun's ability to plan for other future shows. So how to give? You can choose a monthly amount that's comfortable for you. The majority of people give about $5 a month or $10 a month, and some upgrade to $20, $35, or even $100 per month or more. It's really all about what works for you. So go to MaximumFun.org slash join. And now for the show. Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work or represents their work. And today I'm very excited to have writer-director Kelly Reichardt here with me. Hi. Hi, April. <laughs> you got your Fassbender shirt on, I see. I do. Cool. I'm always representing. Mm-hmm. Deep, terrible, tragic German cinema. Okay, good. <laughs> um, for those of you who are less familiar with Kelly's work, where have you been? But please let me give you an introduction. Kelly was born and raised in Miami, Florida, where she showed an early interest in photography. So she migrated north to Boston, where she eventually earned her MFA at the School of the Mu Museum of Fine Arts. B.A. B.A.? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. B.A. Yeah. You should just talk it up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> MFA, yeah. right? <laughs> Around that time, she linked up with an East Coast art crowd that included indie filmmaker Larry Fessenden, uh, who then starred in and helped produce Kelly's feature directorial debut, 1995's River of Grass, set in her hometown, actually, Miami-Dade right. County. The, Larry's in New York. By now, I'm in New York. Did you say that? Yeah, the East okay, Coast cool. crowd, yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, the film... Uh, if people remember, it was an indie breakout, earning three Independent Spirit nominations and taking home the Grand Jury Prize Award from Sundance that year. I don't think and so. Everyone always says that. Really? I, I, that didn't happen. You're going to say no? No, no. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say uh, maybe Tamara Jenkins won the prize. I, I, we need I to certainly fact check it. I did not. I'll tell you that. But it, that comes up, so that's some Miss Wikipedia fake a, news. A fake, miss of fake news? Fake news. <laughs> There's so much that we should just say you did do. Right. She also won a Guggenheim. I have a P PhD. <laughs> I did win a Guggenheim. I know. <laughs> it's later in the bio. Oh, okay. Go on. Onward. I mean, I'm pretty old, so this is going to go on a while. You're like, wait, how did I? Right. Okay. Did I? Um, right. 1976. Go on. <laughs> From there, Kelly made the feature Ode in 1999. Is that correct, Kelly? 98, but okay. I okay. Think so, yeah. Was it released 99? It wasn't released. It was a Super 8 movie. Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, along with some shorts that she made around that time, yeah. too. And then, uh, but 20, or sorry, 2006 marked a very different direction for her career when she found a co-conspirator and writer, John Raymond. Was it around 2006 that you... Uh, first collaborated on uh, Old Joy? Old Joy came out in 2006. We shot it in 2005. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right. Followed by the heartbreaker Wendy and Lucy in the slow Western masterpiece Meek's Cutoff. Masterpiece, yes. I Go know. on. I thought you would like that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. In 2013, she directed the thriller Night Moves and then adapted Miley Malloy's short story collection for the sometimes hilarious, sometimes tragic, triptych feature Certain Women. 
This year, Kelly has reteamed with John Raymond, adapting his novel The Half-Life for her film The Fir- uh, First Cow. An ebullient and sweet meditation on friendship amid scarcity set in the early American West, starring John Magaro and Orion Lee as two unlikely partners scheming to steal milk from the territory's first cow for a daring baking business. There's no possible way that I can list all the awards and accolades Kelly has received over the years, but there's a Guggenheim. But you should know it's a lot. She's also a teacher, the artist in residence at Bard College, and uh, now she's here in Los Angeles for this show today. Hi. That's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, Kelly, the movie that you chose to talk about today is in the French, Mise au sac, but in English, Pillaged. Pillaged. Most often known as Pillaged. Can you give us a little explanation on why this one came to your head, popped in your head of like why you wanted to talk about it? Um, it's not, I didn't want to talk about it because I know a lot about it. I um, I keep bringing it up because I'm hoping it'll resurface. I saw it maybe two years ago at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and uh, I didn't know what I was going to see, and I just, uh, it's really stuck in my mind, and um, I just, uh, yeah, I'm hoping I'm going to get to see it again somewhere along the way. Uh, but there's certain scenes and images uh, that... Uh, that uh, stick with me and, and swim uh, around in there. Yeah, and um, yeah. I'm surprised it is a movie that you had seen only recently, actually, about two years ago. It is. I didn't know about it. Yeah. Somehow. Totally I mean, I under, didn't know. Totally under my radar. Well, I think there's only like a single print of it floating around, and that's mm-hmm. why it's been because I've. Um, been doing some series, and I keep asking for it, and nobody seems to be able to get it. So yeah. Um, uh, the MoMA somehow knew how to get it, but it's very hard to it's very hard to find out any information about this movie, as this people will know from the research that I've done. <laughs> so okay. this will be a very a slightly different kind of episode because I don't have as many quotes um, from the filmmakers involved because this is almost like a buried film, and we'll talk a little bit about that too. Okay. What happens when a movie is like ostensibly quite good, but then it gets buried. Um, But for those of you who haven't seen uh, Pillaged, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Pillaged first, this is your shot. There is a uh, terrible looking copy available on YouTube for people to see. But if you want to see it, that's how you can see it. And now that you're back, let me introduce Pillage with a short synopsis, as short as I can be, because it is a really complex uh, yeah, story. Yeah. All right. So written by Claude Satet, Oscar Densigers, and Hélène Cavalier, and adapted from the Richard Stark novel The Score, directed by Cavalier for release in 1967, Pillaged stars Michel Constantine as George, the French equivalent of Stark's stoic Parker character who graced so many of his novels. The film opens with Georges taking call on a public phone, ah, public phones, and getting an address. When a man follows him, George subdues him and brings him to the address where they meet George's friend, Paulus, played by Philippe Moreau, which I think more people will be, uh, um, will remember Philippe Moreau than, than the other stars in this. And Edgar, Edgar, an affable but bumbling man who's actually called George there to discuss a heist plan. George doesn't take the guy seriously for good reason. 
This guy, Edgar, wants to use 25 guys to pull off a heist of an entire mountain town where Edgar used to live and work. But George sees potential in the plot and becomes their leader, working with a few trusted criminals to recruit a smaller team of 12. Then we immediately get into the heist. So much of the movie is basically the heist. First, they cleverly subdue and restrain the local police, the fire brigade, and then the operators in the telephone exchange, ensuring nobody can call for help or receive any. Then they divide up into teams and hit their marks. But they run into a snag in one spot because Martens, the son of Edgar's old boss, is working late. This could ruin their plans. But eventually Martens leaves and they successfully subdue the accountant in the, in the building. Edgar then follows Martens back to his huge white house beyond a large gate. And that's going to come back. So remember the huge white house. Meanwhile, another team has to turn off the town's power temporarily to get into another cache of money. A small panic happens when the hospital calls the operator and the criminals realize someone might die if they don't get the power back on quickly. But the crisis is averted in the nick of time. Things seem to be going pretty well, considering. But then a guy named Michel Castanier leaves his girlfriend's place late at night and sees the masked marauders. So what does he do? He calls the police. But who, call, who comes to pick him up? The masked marauders in the police car. Meanwhile, Maurice is flirting up Marie-Ange, the telephone operator, and he unmasks himself so they can make out. What most people do during a heist is just, like, get so sexy, right? Mm -hmm. After, she reveals that she recognized Edgar's voice and that the young Martens had an affair with Edgar's wife. And when Martens left the, left the wife, the wife then committed suicide. And Edgar has always held a grudge. Wait, go uh -oh. back. Wait, go back. What's that part again? I know. Yeah, so, just that. Who had an affair with who? So Edgar, the guy who yeah, yeah. used to work there, okay, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. His wife it. had an affair with Martens, who right. is the guy who right. left that building and went into the White House. So right. he's essentially that family owns the no, entire town. No, no, I got that. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. And it. and so then the wife committed suicide. Edgar had always held a grudge. Yes. So while the guys continue their break-in successfully. Edgar yeah. goes to the house. And don't tell the end. No, I have to. No, no, don't our tell whole, the end. Our whole thing is telling the end. Oh, really? <laughs> don't tell the end. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Edgar finds an entrance into the Martens' home and stops oh. answering his walkie-talkie. And George has to retrieve him but finds him dumping gasoline all over the house and tries to restrain him. Why are you telling? Because it's the whole point of the show. <laughs> no, but, but the end doesn't. It's not called the end, your no, show. No, I don't know. <laughs> they, my my listeners expect it, so it's it's okay. They they go in knowing that they're going to get spoiled. Uh, but Edgar, but this is a good. It's really a good ending to come to. Um, I know, but we have to talk about the ending in the show. No, we don't. We talk yes, about we all do. the other things. Kelly, we have I, to. <laughs> but Edgar, hold on. I swear it's going to be okay. Uh, Edgar, la, Edgar la, succeeds la, la, la. in igniting the house. Oh. George escapes, but Edgar gets shot in the back. Everyone meets up and splits ways. The police give chase. Um, Edgar dies in the car. Some of the men are captured, while George and a few others must leave the money behind and hop a bus back to Lyon. They see from the window their partners being led to police cars. It could have been perfect if not for Edgar. <laughs> what a shame. What a shame. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a it's a twisty story. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot yeah, of people. It has a lot, of, but it. Um, I mean, you have it as a total classic setup, like a bunch of criminals get out of jail and meet up to do a heist. Just yeah. one, just one more. Yes. And then they're never going to do it again. It's um, quite simple in that way. Yeah. 
Um, but it's so beautifully shot. It's a shame to watch it on YouTube because uh, the print they showed was just gorgeous. Yeah, and, you can um, see, like, um, if you look it up, you can see some of the restored images, just stills. And uh-huh. then if you look at that, you're like, oh, my God, I can see that there's so much color and life and depth to it that you can't see from this kind of VHS copy that, that was recorded right. from French television, I think. It's really a filmmaker's dream that you could, A, hear the ending first on a podcast and then go watch the 35 millimeter film on YouTube. It's It's all all, truly how it was supposed to end up. Yeah. I mean, I really think that if anyone were to adapt this story again, I was like, oh, I guess it would be Kelly. (laughs) Um, It doesn't. The thing is, it's so good. It doesn't need adapting. Like, I don't know how you'd really make it better. Like the kid would be what have to be out on the street on a cell phone. Yeah. Which is like, you know, um, Technology has ruined everything. But, but ad- yeah, adapting but, it is, yeah. I think, a very different. Um, it's a different skill. You mm-hmm. have adapted a lot of things for, yeah, but screen. not from other movies. No, but yeah. you've adapted. <laughs> I mean, like I would yeah. say, adapting the book probably. And yeah. I think that it takes a different skill to commit a book to screen. And I'm curious too because I know First Cow is only one small part of the Half Life. It's not. Yeah, the entire novel, you know. No, it's um, the novel goes uh, goes back and forth between 1980 and the 1800s, and we just sort of have an early prologue in the in a contemporary setting um, to sort of situate the location of our uh, our the the film takes place around a. a a trapping fort. We have a chief factor played by Toby Jones, who would yeah. be the man in the White House, yeah. right? And he um, is kind of modeled after John McLaughlin, who worked for the Hudson Bay Company and came from England and went up to Vancouver. And they came down mm-hmm. to what is now Oregon to trap beaver and sell beaver and all this, uh, the beaver trade. And so anyway, it all takes place along the Columbia River in this little area that, that was known as the Lower Columbia District for a while and uh, uh, home of the um, Multnomah tribes, uh, especially the Chinook, lived there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, our film takes place in 1820. And uh, there is the um, big man in town who uh, sort of has all the power. And then uh, the uh, our protagonists are trying to, you know, get a toehold into... Uh, some kind of normal life, and the only uh, resources they have kind of have to involve a theft. So mm-hmm. a hi- there's a heist. Um, it is. It is a heist. There, I mean, yeah. and, and if I think if— You're not going to tell the ending. Right? No, I'm not going to tell the ending. I'm okay. not going to spoil your movie. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you can see it on YouTube. <laughs> there's uh I, I think that if I put those this movie and yours in a kind of parallel state, that there there's um, not just the fact that there's like the man in the White House that, you know, yeah. metaphorically, or that there's a kind of heist, but there's also um, a sweetness to both. And they're very populated by many men. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of... Um sexy french ladies and pillaged <laughs> there's there's uh there's definitely yeah. a few sexy yeah. um splashed in and in yeah. fact the telephone operator um is played by aren tonk who is a alain cavalier's um wife at the time oh wow um and she is kind of magnetic i would yeah. say on the screen um and i like that kind of the 
well, one of many things that I think that both of the your movie and this movie are doing is that there's kind of breathing room through kind of the um, the actual plot of what's going on. That there are side moments that have this bit of levity, you know, and and that they they aren't necessarily always focused on what's going to happen with the oil oily cakes or what's yeah. going to happen with the heist. Yeah. But there's enough kind of um, subplot elsewhere to give breathing right. room to the whole story. Do, is right. that like a conscious thing for you that you think about? Like where you're like, oh, here's here's a place where right. I need to put this character in because we need a, yeah. a moment. Yeah, the novel doesn't have a cow. So instead of like extracting a bunch of stuff from the novel, we took the characters from the novel and the themes from the novel and created a smaller sort of uh, like we have the cow and uh all that follows there. In in the novel, they go, uh, King Lou and Cookie extract oil from the beaver glands and take it to um, China, and it spans 40 years. So anyway, yeah, that might instead not be of, easy yeah. to... So instead of um, having, uh, extracting all that, we, um, you know, we have this simpler, more minimalist mechanism that lets us remain local and deal with a shorter span of time so that we can, so that I can, um, you know, get in there and, you know, extend Mm -hmm. and create what inside that, the outlines of that formal um, setting that uh, John set up that, I mean, when I get it, like, sort of, so much of it uh when i get the script uh like you know after we do a lot of brainstorming but john does the first draft and a lot of the i would say the sort of depth that's in the story and the characters mm-hmm. is coming from him and then um i you know i could, like the um talking about the heist there's a, a scene um for example where king lou mm-hmm. uh and they get busted for their crime. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be, um, we're at the Chief Factor's house, who is sort of a, he's played by Toby Jones. And the Chief Factor is kind of, think of him like the CEO of Firestone that goes to, you know, Africa to exploit the um, natural no. resources. So he's not a landowner, per se. He's a he's just like a CEO. No. So he, um, anyway, we're at his house and... Uh, a chase is going to ensue. But so then you look at that moment and in, in the writing, it all works. But in the filmmaking, you're just like, OK, wait, I got to slow this down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I need to draw this out and build some tension. And I'm going to need some kind of like parallel scenario going on. So I've got to like need, I got to get inside the chief factor's house and then I can be outside in the backyard. Mm-hmm. So then it's just like, well, there'll be a servant and we need a cat and uh, there'll be a bunkhouse. <laughs> and then this Ewan McGregor character that was just in these earlier scenes could live there and mm-hmm. there'll be this kid, Thomas. And, and so anyway, just start building out all these people, which is really a way to just slow this scene down yeah. so that tension can build and there can be these, the captain will spend the night. So then... <laughs> those characters then have to like go back and work them into the whole fabric of the movie mm-hmm. of um so that they don't just like arrive kind of when you need them so i guess that's like the kind of uh fun thing of being able to build on a uh you know, tried and true elements yeah. of a heist and you have these elements like time and 
parallel action and these things that you always find in all these scenes, but then you get to make them with your own characters in your own situation that you've set up. And, um, um, but you're kind of using the tools that have been around forever. Like, you know, the classic, like the guard is going back to check on in the, uh, thinking of like Le Circle Rouge right now or yeah. something, you know, like the guard is going to go check the alarm one yeah, more this is time. What, yeah, this is when know? they do like yeah. the sweep. This is like yeah. the round. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, we need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get um, uh, a little further into um, some of these characters and the fact that there's no backstory for most of them right. and how that works in a film. And um, a few other things with regard to the plot and how to represent a mass of men and try to keep their characters straight. Uh, we'll be right back. It's April. We're back to talk about the Max Fun Drive, and we've got a special treat for you. I brought uh, my producer, Casey O'Brien, in, who, you know, you get little snippets of here and there, but now you get a little feature of him. And we're going to talk about Max Fun Drive. Um, so, Casey, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, uh, I, I recently uh, inherited a, a priceless Fabergé egg, Ooh. and um, that has caused a rift between my family and I, particularly my ex-wife, um, my ex-wife's nephew, my stepbrother, uh, the caretaker at Nana's house, and uh, Drea Clark of the Who Shot You podcast. Oh, my. I frankly fear for my life, but that's not why I'm here today, April. Great, okay. Because I'm here, I'm here to talk about the Max Fun Drive, um, which is just a really fun time for our network and our shows because we really get an opportunity to talk to people who listen to our show and contribute to our community um yeah it's just awesome we've gotten so much great feedback uh from listeners um yeah i'll read you i'm gonna read you i'm gonna read you a a quote from one of our listeners all right uh just getting my regular podcasts in my feed has been a welcome distraction from all the craziness thank you so much for all you guys do and that's from marissa in magnolia in magnolia arkansas isn't that nice oh in arkansas i love Arkansas. i love arkansas me too i've been there it's a lovely place so yeah hot springs was my favorite all the areas around wonderful place um very cool yeah um well yeah just i just wanted to you know hop in here um tell you about the fabergé egg situation and then also to you know tell our listeners that you know this is a very difficult time and strange time for people and so that's why this year instead of doing kind of an intense two-week max fun drive we're just kind of doing a more chilled out four week one mm-hmm. so that you know I, people don't feel as much uh, pressure to contribute financially if they can't do it uh, yeah and you know we're trying to give some extra special love to a few a few fun things that that we'd love to give to people um and one of those things is um a a chicken zoom background yes um, we're working on that right now a zoom background with uh one of the be- one of our favorite characters of the switchblade sisters podcast chicken mm-hmm. yeah she's been making a lot of appearances lately yeah she's wonderful she's uh, very floofy uh, um and uh yeah i think i think you guys are really gonna love the background on top of the the chicken background which is i mean we should be charging yeah premium chicken content that. on top yes. of that on top of that we have all these great gifts at the different levels um the uh the five dollar monthly membership uh that's just five bucks a month you get all of the bonus content from all of the 
Maximum Fun shows, um, which ours was this year was another one of our great Murder She Wrote episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the ten dollar monthly membership, you can get our pin and membership card. Our pin is really great. I'm very this excited year. about this pin. I'm very happy to support can it. Can you describe it to people, April? It is like um, lush kind of bright red uh blood red vampire lips with uh the the vampire teeth coming down Mm -hmm. and then it says uh do you even watch horror bro (laughs) yeah and (laughs) the bro is in the mouth which i love uh it's i think it's our best pin oh and it's really awesome and we designed it ourselves Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it really is great. And then the $20 monthly membership uh, is a game pack. This is really cool. It's got these Max Fun inspired playing cards. There is a Switchblade Sisters playing card. I believe one of the, the playing card has a Switchblade in their hand. Um, so those are really cool. And it comes uh, with a pl- pack of six blue Max Fun dice in their own velvety dice bag. Nice. So if you're a gamer, that's really cool. And the $35 monthly membership, you can get you get all of that and a Rocket Camp mug. Um, yeah, but you know, the the you can go higher, you can go lower, but you know, $5, $10, that's those are those help so much. Something else that's fun that's happening that you guys should put on your calendars is that we will be doing a live watch along of the Apple with the Who Shot You folks on July 25th at 2 p.m. Check it out. What April, you're going to be there. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, the Apple's one of my favorite movies, and it's one of the movies where Alonzo and I are in absolute agreement. About. <laughs> yes. I don't think Iffy's seen it, so that's going to be really fun. It's not too long. It'll be a great time. So check that out. July 25th at 2 p.m. We'll have more uh, info. 2 p.m. Pacific. We'll have more info about that later. All right, April, I'm going to go tend to this uh, horrible Fabergé egg situation with my family that has totally disrupted and split apart my life in a very damaging way. So I'm just going to go take care of that right now. Wait, what are you doing here? Hey, I told you I didn't want to see you again. Is everything okay? Yeah, everything's okay, April. Just I just have to handle a delicate situation. Hey, I told you. No, put that down. Casey. Put that. Oh, Casey? Oh my God, Casey's been stabbed! Well, I guess tune in next time to see if he lives or not. And all right, back to the show. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm joined today by Kelly Reichardt, and we're talking about pillaged. Okay, so um, one thing that I thought was very well done, interesting, and a perfect technique is the fact that we are dropped right into the story. He picks up the phone, makes the call, and someone's following him, and then he's in this room, and we don't necessarily know any of these people's backstories, but we know they're attempting a quite insane scheme of a heist, and we don't get the backstory of what brought these people to this place necessarily. It's revealed in scene with little mannerisms and things, and each of them kind of getting a line of dialogue or just a piece of action that reveals character but most often we get nothing you know it's just the work it's doing the work and I find that really interesting and very methodical everyone has their specialty yeah exactly you know like um, Kirini uh, is the safe cracker right and he's the guy who's got to use his 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 know-hows to break through some of these extremely complex safes Um, and then I find that 
probably freeing in some way as a filmmaker, not revealing backstory, just dropping your like characters into something and saying going from here. And I know that to some extent your films have done this too. Um, yeah, they're just. Um, I mean, you must know enough. You know enough about is his name Edgar? That, <laughs> that he has a that yeah. he has a bone to pick with. Yeah. The, uh, but um, yeah, uh, our films are. are are just sort of I always think of them sort of like you just drop in on these people and you catch them where they are and they uh and you spend this you know amount of time with them it's usually like a week or two mm-hmm. and then um off they go and so you're just catching a um you're kind of more learning who they are uh by just watching how they do chores or whatever yeah. they do, you know. Well, I mean, I uh, yeah. think that's like a huge element of your film and this film that I find fascinating, too, is that so much of this movie is about the work, about yeah. these guys doing the work. And if I'm watching First Cow or anything else that you've made, there is a certain amount of kind of um, a methodology of someone just doing the work of living daily. For you, when you're making films, do you find that <laughs> – do you ever use – people doing work is like a a cheat or a shortcut to be like, well, I need tension here. (laughs) Well, it's not a cheat. I mean, um, uh, it's just, um, it's just, uh, I'm trying to think, well, yeah, like in night moves, you know, they have to, uh, you know, set the, uh, you know, the clock on the bomb and put the, Mm -hmm. uh, put the needle, the, cables together whatever it was <laughs> and um you know like, all those done. things yeah that movie's <laughs> over um they have to do all those things and then they have to like paddle back to shore and you know you're all in the like you're so the clock element of course that's a classic you know tells you the viewer how much time yeah and then you know they're all ready and you're like oh finally they're in the boat and they're gonna get away but then whoops a guy gets a flat tire up, uh, you know, above, and he's got to change. Now we have to wait for him to change his tire. Yeah. And he's just having a lackadaisical conversation with his girlfriend. Like, that's the classic. Like, someone else is not in a hurry, mm-hmm. and you're in a hurry. And the person that's not in a hurry is holding <laughs> is holding you up. Um, that's a... Oh, that's been used over and over that's again. The class, you know? but that's But it, it works, yeah. Yeah, It works every time. That's the thing. It works. <laughs> yeah. For this movie, in particular, for... Um, uh, for Pillaged, I think it's interesting to think about what heist movies were doing at the time in 1967 and how Pillaged different, did it differently because it wasn't widely acclaimed and loved necessarily and it, it wasn't even really released in the U.S., even though United, United Artists in the U.S. had funded it. Um, mm-hmm. But at that time, um, you have a kind of... Um, kind of a happier, uh, more fun take on a heist because uh, you had, uh, in that decade, Thomas Crown Affair, Top Copy, um, Seven Thieves, Ocean's Eleven came out that um, that time, Dead Heat on a Merry-Go-Round, Once a Thief, The Great Train Robbery. There was still a kind of exuberance of the 1960s, and they hadn't kind of broken way into the 1970s because the films of the 1970s are, have much more in common, I would think, with this film from 67, the heist films, that is. Like Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, for instance. Very kind of similar in tone and um, grittiness and almost a voyeuristic sense of, of what was going on. 
I think yeah. that it's it's worth talking about the fact that when there are films that are of a specific genre that are running counter to the kind of um, greater thought of what that genre should be at that time, they don't necessarily always get the love. And I think that you're working often in Western genres. You're working mm. in, you've done thrillers, you've done, um, you know, like small dramas. But what dramas. year did we say Pillaged is? 67. Six, 67, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's right around the time you're not supposed to feel like you're little hometown is safe anymore, anymore yeah you know do you feel like you <laughs> well i mean that's what i I'm have saying. a big thought <laughs> just... that's what i'm saying in terms of you know trying to adhere to a specific type of genre for the time period or do you you know like do you ever feel like you are out of time i didn't feel like um with this uh with first cow i didn't really feel the restraints of uh any kind of genre even though it like takes place in the West and mm -hmm. it's like early days. Um, I didn't, uh, and it is, you know, like I am definitely playing around with the heist thing for 10 minutes of the film or whatever. Um, it, it, I don't know why, for whatever reason, I guess, just it felt, it all felt particular enough, the world we were building to just um, be able to uh set shots and scenes in whatever service it was to this exact story mm -hmm. and these two characters. Maybe because the relationship is like the main thing between the two characters. I didn't really, um, yeah, I didn't really have like some shadow hanging over me mm -hmm. of, um, besides the scene that I was just describing earlier of just using some of those uh, tools all of a sudden to have a film that's not following those rules to all of a sudden say, well, here's some, you know, little moment that we're going to, um, like, uh, you know, like <laughs> so you go, okay, look, I could do this if I wanted to be doing this. I don't know how to do this. Look, look. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, just the, you know, just to, um, you know, moments you're doing it, but then you, um, you know, but then you're like fall into some weird, you know, Tai Chi cabin outside, uh, you know, in the woods. <laughs> you know, it's as not you like do. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as one might, uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's a, so it's not. Um, yeah, it was nice. It was very freeing as far as how to make it uh, without, like, to make a period piece and not. Feel, when I made Meeks cut off, I was just like so aware of like, mm -hmm. um, just that I was, you know dealing with whether I was breaking away from it or not just like dealing like the genre you know it's a western this did not feel that way to me um, well, I mean, you're also doing the uh, same as Meek's Cutoff. You're doing a 4-3 aspect ratio on it. So it's got kind of a, a squarish um, look to it. So it, it cuts off any kind of um, a larger sense of the world sometimes. And yeah. I'm wondering, you know, keeping it, it small maybe yeah. probably helps with that. In terms yeah. of like also with Pillaged too, we were talking about the cinematography. Right. This is a mountain town and there are yeah. ostensibly mountains surrounding the entire village, but we aren't, we're not getting these grand sweeping shots. We're getting right. very precise kind of uh, roaming eye POV things that are that are really kind of grounded and they're, right. they're only covering what they need to cover of the city or of um, the, the places that they're in. Yeah, uh, 
You know that Fleischer film, Violent Saturday? Is it Violent Saturday or Violent Sunday? Violent Saturday. Where it's a it's Violent a, Weekend. <laughs> it's a heist. I mean, it's a bank robbery movie. Yeah. But it's all, um, man, it's really beautifully shot. And it's all it's all wide shots. There's like hardly anything besides wide shots in it, which is kind of amazing for a, um, a movie that's... Uh, centers on this bank robbery and tough guy it like the moral of the film is so twisted uh but um but it's uh it's in a mountain town and you're constantly like surrounded by these uh mountains that you um where you feel really just so locked in by them it mm-hmm. just becomes super kind of repressive it's re- it's a really great looking movie but uh which i just thought of when you were talking about that but the um the academy is very uh, frame is very nice for uh, you know height and stuff you know so if you it's it's an intimate frame but you do get more foreground and height so you uh, you know like in first cow in the um, you know with the trees of the northwest and all it's nice mm-hmm. like getting the and um, and it kind of helps serve a couple scenes you know where. Uh, um, you know, some characters are up high and some are down below. And, uh, you know, it just, yeah, it, but in, in the cottages and hutches in the film, you know, it, it makes for such a nice, um, intimate, it, yeah, it's an, it's a more intimate frame. It's like more, it's a more closed frame than a open, uh, you know, here's, you know, the vast wilderness kind yeah. of thing. I mean, the vast wilderness, that's cheap. Mm. Everyone's seen some wilderness. It's beautiful, yeah. of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, one thing I thought was very interesting about this movie is the fact that it really, really takes time to not be violent and to yeah. not even I, enforce that there might be violence, like a threat of it. Well, there's the, um, I mean, people are being handcuffed and, it's so put away. it's so gentle though. Like the way that they do it is just like everything's fine. Right. Like they don't even flash guns most of right. the time. It's just like once in a while. And there's um the one guy who's the expert for instance. There's there's a scene in the early bit where they're all sitting around the table, all these 12 men, and they're just like asking a few questions about like how is this going to go? And it's yeah. actually a very short scene. But what that reveals is the fact that there's this guy Karini who's the um the safe expert and he refuses to carry a gun. He refuses to take part and even um, holding a prop gun because he is so um, abhorrent. Um, he finds violence so abhorrent that part of the movie actually kind of takes on Karini's attitude and in some ways where it's just like, this is the absolute, we, we don't want this, there is no violence. And I thought that that was a really interesting mm-hmm. thing to, to take over because actually when they submitted it to the U.S. to get um, a rating on it, it was given a rating of G originally. Yeah. Because they had dubbed out any swear words that they had, but every, the entire content was actually G. Can't show it here. Not enough violence. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Not accepted. <laughs> it's got to be at least, yeah. you know, a few yeah. more shootings. No yeah. Yeah. In G, no guns. Yeah. But it's like, no, no go. <laughs> yeah. But I think that that's an interesting thing, too, because the Stark novel wasn't necessarily, was actually fairly violent. I think that um, the character of Parker actually kills, for instance, the first, um, the guy who You're, you're going to give away the end of the book, too, aren't you? No, yeah. I'm not <laughs> going to. <laughs> but, like, there's a murder that takes place in, like, the early scenes. I want to tell people how this, re- how this 
interview is going to end before we get there. <laughs> Do it. Um, yeah. But I, I think that speaking about violence and what it serves in a film is worthwhile. And the violence in this film is not the focus because the focus is on the work, always on the work. Yeah. And I think that it sets itself apart also from some other heist movies as well because of that. Yeah, it's interesting how... Uh, violence can now just almost like it almost ends tension because then you're like in the violence you don't have to like anticipate it anymore and 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 some films it's just like such an orgy of violence that it's almost like yeah you just um you can just it's not the anticipating of something sinister that's going to happen it's just like here's this and you've seen that you know before so um yeah it's uh, i mean i think not having violence is a way to like keep some keep tension going because people expect yeah. it now so there yeah it's like a um, warm bath at this point a warm bath of yeah. non-violence and peace no it's a warm bath of violence now oh. <laughs> like just because like so um seemingly people are so accustomed to it it's so like um yeah I I feel like with your film, there very easily could have been more violence there if a different filmmaker had tried to do something yeah. with that. Because it's the American West, right? Yeah. If a different filmmaker was going to make a movie about two guys stealing milk, <laughs> it's really the zeitgeist. It's like, They've yeah. got guns. Yeah. Because <laughs> you got to spice it up for Hollywood, yeah, right? Gotta, yeah. I wanted to get into the politics of this movie because okay. I think that they are not on the surface necessarily. There is a scene. And it's a very quick shot when they're going by the factory. So they're driving up to the factory and there is graffiti. And the graffiti reads, here ends freedom. And at this time in France, it was the end of the Algerian War and... It was a very difficult time for a lot of people because there was a lot of veterans that were returning and there was a lot of economic downturn. And so people were very, very distinctly feeling desperate for money and for um, a kind of future and a livelihood. And so despite the fact that this movie doesn't seem political on the surface, there are points where Hélène Cavalier, who was very politically active, um, would kind of poke in with the real world and what was going on in France at that time. And if you look for them, they're there. They're not overt. He was never overt with any of those things. But I think that's an interesting technique as a filmmaker. You know, I mean, like you are leaving your mark. Um, You're trying to set a context of a time and a place. And it makes more sense if these guys are very interested in getting this heist, if they actually feel desperate. You know, if there's a a general pervasive sense of desperation um, going throughout the land. I can't speak to it. Yeah, no, yeah. No, but you can talk yeah, about yeah, political yeah. messages and, and Well, I'm not into yeah, I don't I mean I think it's like probably bad filmmaking to have a political message, uh which doesn't mean like, you know, whatever I mean everything's political, but uh uh so it doesn't mean, Yeah, or just the people, you know, everyone the just small politics of life uh or um of I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting you can have those uh, sort of, you know, like first Cal sort of looking at like the first seeds of capitalism, 
you know, versus the natural world, I guess, and mm-hmm. to see if those two things can coexist. And um, but that's like a big thing. But then you just I don't know, I think it's good to focus on the uh, when you're making something just on the nitty gritty of like the wants and needs and the immediate things of the characters are telling a story about. Otherwise, uh, you know, you don't want to make like any kind of straight shot to anything because everything's complicated and has so many layers to it. And uh, so do you ever um, get lost in the context? Have you ever gotten lost where you're like, okay, I need people to understand this about this particular story? No. I mean, no. I mean, I there's like a scene in First Cow that was really tricky because it's like a scene in the Chief Factor's house, and there's a there's like a servant uh, who's from the islands, and there's the Chief Factor who has all the power, and this captain who's there, and then there's uh, our Chinese protagonist and our Jewish protagonist, and who's the cook, and then. Uh, uh, Gary Farmer plays, plays like the prominent man, uh, you know, from the head of the Chinook tribe, and uh, and Lily Gladstone plays the Chinook wife of the chief factor. And I'm like, oh my god, all these people in one room, and there's definitely a pecking order uh, having to do, you know, like where, you know, you got to figure out like where the power lies in the room and sort of beat to beat and how to get that across and mm-hmm. you know I have fear of it being misunderstood um, or fear of it not coming across not in a message way but just in a un- explaining what the scene was and yeah. where everyone is on the and how the power dynamics are playing for each person in the scene but do you have like an epiphany where you're like oh I don't have to be this complex or I do have to be this complex and here's well that solution. scene was just like everything everyone coming together and so that's kind of what it was about so it's just about figuring out how to um how to get all that across without it you know coming out of everyone's mouths of in the dialogue of like what it is but it was like for me that was like okay this is this is a you know it was a it was complicated to figure out, you know, just, um, but, and. You could have done what Alain Cavalier did and don't explain any of it. Just put these people in a room and never explain Right. It. But they're not, it's different because they're all white dudes in yeah. a room, you yeah. know. So it's like that's, that changes it a bit. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Like, there can be the dumb guy and the smarter guy and the tougher guy um, and the guy who's just a pro and is super calm and cool about it or whatever. It could be, like, those differences. But, yeah, that's just—it's, like, a little bit different. Yeah. Do you ever feel the urge to boil your characters down, though, in certain scenes like that into simpler archetypes? No. No, I mean, uh, they—you know, they're all sort of— imperfect people uh, with, um, you know, their ambitions and their faults. And hopefully, you know, I mean, some of them we get to spend more time with than others. So we know them better or Mm -hmm. less or better. Uh, But um, I mean, I thought uh, Toby Jones did such a great job of making his character. I mean, his character could have been more one dimensional if he wasn't such a um, such a, you know, he's just 
he's so good with nuance. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was like not, I wasn't in danger of that. But um, yeah, it was, I mean, it could all go wrong uh, easily. Well, that's a great place to wrap okay. up. It could all, all go, go wrong, wrong easily. Yes. <laughs> I said that's where we'll end. Um, Fini. Fini, um, yeah. There are four of Kelly's films that are available to watch on the Criterion channel, as well as a master class that we did together uh, two years ago, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, right. Uh, so you can catch up with her uh, or late her earlier work before you catch her new film, First Cow. Um, anything else? Any other places people can find you? Are, are you hiding, uh, uh, you know, just skulking around Bard? Just waiting for fans to to rush you? Uh, no. no. Not not this not... semester. Not now. Not right this minute. No. Okay. <laughs> That's not happening. Um, uh, that is a institute of learning, not fandom. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks for <laughs> thanks for thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you so much for listening to and supporting our show. Um, I just can't thank you all enough. Um, all the people who have gone out of their way to support us um, and become a Max Fund member, you're truly the reason that we're able to continue making the show. I just can't, I can't come up with other words that say thank you. Um, so uh, again, if you want to join, all you have to do is go to maximumfund.org join and you can kind of choose the membership that works best for you. We appreciate all, 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 all of it. And um, I also wanted to give a shout out on this episode to a couple of books um, from a company called Seven Throats, an outlet that uh, does amazing film criticism and film writing. And uh, one of their books is called Roads to Nowhere, Kelly Reichardt's Broken American Dreams. It's an ebook that you can read that kind of goes through a lot of her process, uh, even more in depth than, than we could just in this episode. But it's a really great companion piece and you should check it out. They also have one called Beyond Empowertainment, Feminist Horror and the Struggle for Female Agency, which, of course, you know I love. So maybe take a gander at those after you go to MaximumFun.org join. Our producer is Casey O'Brien, who has been canonically stabbed in this episode. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.